0: The following programme contains adult themes. Now on Documentary and Drama on News Talk,
1: on the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's masterpiece, Ulysses, a two part drama that tells the story of Bloomsday, June 16, 1904. Strolling through Ulysses.
2: We rejoin Mr. Bloom, who has just left Davy Byrne's pub and is heading for the National Library. And as he's walking along Kildare Street, he sees in the distance, straw hat in sunlight, tan shoes,
3: turned-up trousers. It is, it is,
2: Blaze is boiling again. When well, Mr. Bloom panics and hides until boiling is out of sight.
3: Not following me.
2: Didn't see me, perhaps. Light in his eyes. He enters the National Library and Stephen Dedalus is also in the National Library, sitting among his literary friends, discussing and analysing Shakespeare and Hamlet and other lofty literary issues.
0: The player is Shakespeare, who has studied Hamlet all the, the years States. of his life,
3: Deserves
0: was not the, portals
2: the of Antony And, and Stephen continues to ramble on. Ah, but it's still a beautiful June afternoon outside.
4: Kind air defined the coins of houses in Kildare Street. Frail from the housetops, two plumes of smoke ascended, pluming. And in a flaw of softness Softly were blown It's now between
2: three and four In the afternoon And the city of Dublin Is teeming with life Joyce takes us to the Daedalus household In Cabra Where Katie and Boody Daedalus Two of Stephen's sisters Are desperately trying to Scrape enough money together For food
1: Did you put in the books? They wouldn't give anything on them What's in the pot? Shirts Crikey Is there nothing for us to eat?
2: Simon Dedalus has just sold some of the household curtains at Dylan's auction rooms. That's how bad things are. And another sister, Dilly, is waiting for him outside the auction rooms to try to get some of the money from him before he squanders it all.
1: Did you get any money?
0: Where would I get money? There's no one in Dublin would lend me fourpence.
1: You got some. I know you did.
4: He handed her a shilling.
1: I suppose you got five. Give me more than that.
0: You're like the rest of them. An
2: insolent pack of bitches since your mother died. The late Paddy Dignam's son, Patrick, strolls past the International Bar on Wicklow Street, known to most Dubliners as O'Donoghue's, as he makes his way home having picked up some
4: groceries for his mother. Opposite Ruggy O'Donoghue's, Master Patrick Aloysius Dignam, pawing the pound and a half of Mangan's pork steaks he had been sent for, went along warm Wicklow Street dawdling, his cap awry, his collar sticking up. Master Dignam got his collar down and dawdled on.
2: In the meantime, Blaze's Boylan telephones his office. And his secretary tells him that a Mr. Lenehan wants to meet up with him at four o'clock in the Ormond Hotel to give him the result of the Ascot Gold Cup. But as you and I know, he also has another appointment at four o'clock. With the Buxom Molly. And as Lenehan on his way to the Ormond Hotel is strolling along the Liffey Quays with his friend McCoy, they both notice under the archway at Merchant's Arch. A dark-backed figure scanned books on the hawker's cart. It's our Mr. Bloom. Wonder what he's buying. He's dead nuts on sales. Lenehan entertains McCoy with a story of times past and of Molly Bloom.
0: There was a big spread at the Glen Key Reformatory. The annual dinner, you know. boiled shirt affair. Bloom and the wife were there. We had... A midnight lunch after all the jollification, and when we sallied forth, it was blue o'clock in the morning after the night before. Coming home, it was a gorgeous winter's night on the featherbed mountains. Bloom and Chris Callanan were on one side of the car, and I was with the wife on the other. Every jolt the bloody car gave, I had her bumping up against me. Hell's delights. She is a fine bear.
4: God bless her. Like that. He held his caved hands a cubit from him, frowning.
0: The lad stood to attention anyhow. She's a gamey mare and no mistake. Bloom was pointing out all the stars and the comets in the heavens to Chris Callanan and the Jarvie. I was lost, so to speak, in the Milky Way. He's a cultured all-round
5: man. He's not one of your common or garden, you know. There's a touch of the artist about Old Bloom.
2: Of course, the artist, Old Bloom, is busy rummaging through the hawker's cart to find a smutty book to titillate Molly's and probably his own tastes. He buys what he hopes will do the trick, a book with the title of Sweets of Sin. In the meantime, the bold Blazes Boylan is strolling past Trinity College and he hears an army band in College Park.
4: By the provost's wall came jauntily Blazes Boylan, stepping in tan shoes and socks with sky blue socks to the refrain of my girl's a Yorkshire girl with wide brim hat at a rakish angle and a suit of indigo serge.
2: But Blazes Boylan soon realises that, well, he's running a bit late. So what does he do? He jumps into a jaunting car. And Joyce now brings us to the Ormond Hotel on Ormond Quay, or more particularly to the hotel bar. Lenehan comes into the bar looking, of course, for Blazes Boylan. In the meantime, Mr Bloom, with sweets of sin safely tucked in his pocket, buys two sheets of cream vellum paper and two envelopes. He's anxious to resume the role of Henry Flower and reply to Martha's letter. And as he comes out of the shop, his heart, poor man, misses a beat.
4: He eyed and saw afar on Essex Bridge a gay hat riding on a jaunting car. Yes,
2: it's him.
3: Again. It is. Third time. Hmm. Coincidence.
2: Yes, it's Blaze's Boylan on his way to meet up with Lenehan in the Ormond Hotel, before going over to Molly. Mr. Bloom gets it into his head to follow Boylan's jaunting car on foot. Follow. Risk it. Go quick. At four. Near. Now. Out. And, of course, he ends up at the Ormond Hotel. Now, he really doesn't want to bump into Boylan, So he slips quietly into the dining room while Lennon and Boylan are in the bar. He bumps into an acquaintance of his, Richie Goulding, and they both decide to have their main meal of the day together. Mr Bloom orders liver and bacon with mashed potatoes, and, to wash it down, a bottle of cider. Well, there's great banter and chat and song in the bar. What's your cry? Glass of bitter?
5: And what did the doctor order today?
2: I think I'll trouble you for some fresh
0: water and a half a glass of whiskey.
3: Ah, come on, Simon. Give us a ditty. We heard the piano. Ah,
0: I couldn't, man. My dancing days are done. The crappy
5: boy, Ben. Our native Doric. Good men and true. Do, do.
3: Good men and true in this house who dwell To a stranger vocal, I pray you tell It's the priest at home, or may he be seen I want to speak a word with Father Green To the priest at home, by and may be seen Tis easy speaking with Father Green
2: I'm off! Come on to blazes! Got the horn or what? Wait! Blazes Boylan eventually departs in the jaunting car for his appointment with Molly. By
4: bachelor's walk jog jauntily jingled Blazes Boylan bachelor in sun in heat mare's glossy rump a trot with a flick of whip on bounding tyres sprawled warm seated Boylan impatience ardent bold
2: Yes Blazes Boylan, the dapper impresario, and Mrs. Marion Bloom, the voluptuous soprano, are about to rehearse for the Belfast concert in more ways than one. During his meal, Mr. Bloom conjures up in his imagination the scene at Echo Street. Jing!
3: Stop! Knock! Last look at mirror always before she answers the door.
2: He ponders over the first time he met Molly.
3: First night. When I first saw her at Matt Dillon's in Terranure. Yellow, black lace she wore. Musical chairs. We to the last. Fate. After her. Fate. Round and round, slow. Quick round, we two all looked. Halt. Down she sat. All ousted looked. Lips laughing. Yellow knees.
6: The sun shines for you, he said. The day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hope Head. The day I got him to propose to me.
2: With his meal finished, Mr Bloom leaves the Ormond Hotel and strolls along the quays. Suddenly, he feels a pressing urge to break wind.
3: I feel I want... Now if I did that at a banquet, must be the cider, or perhaps the burgundy.
2: He's not quite finished yet, and he stops for a moment outside a shop on Ormond Quay where Robert Emmet's famous speech from the dock is displayed in the window.
3: When my country takes its place among (coughs) must be the bur- (coughs) oh the nations of the earth no one behind then and not till then I'm sure it's the Burgundy let my epitaph be written I have done.
2: And with that bit of uh, bodily housekeeping out of the way, Mr. Bloom walks up Pill Lane and Greek Street and eventually ends up on Little Britain Street. It's now around five o'clock and at the funeral this morning, Mr. Bloom had arranged to meet up with Martin Cunningham around this time. So here, in Barney Kiernan's pub, Joyce leaves us in the hands of a nasty grumpy Dublin begrudger, who hasn't got a good word to say about anybody.
5: And there, sure enough, was the Citizen, up in the corner having a great confab with himself and
2: that bloody mangy mongrel Gary Owen, and he waiting for what the sky would drop in the way of drink. The Citizen, a narrow-minded, dogmatic, bigoted, public-house windbag, well, they're all swilling pints, and little Alf Bergen can't believe it. Betty Digman's dead. Sure, I'm
0: only after seeing him not five minutes ago, as as, as plain as a pike staff.
3: You saw his ghost, then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Between us and harm, what? <laughs> oh, ha! Huh?
0: Good Christ! And will he marry with them? The two of them there watching McCallum's dead. He's no more dead than you are.
3: Maybe so. They took the liberty of burying him this morning anyhow. Be
2: <laughs> Begob He was what you might call. Flabbergasted. The citizen sees Mr. Bloom pacing up and down outside the pub. What is that bloody Freemason doing prowling up and down outside? He's on point duty up and down there for the last ten minutes. And as Mr. Bloom is smoking his cigar and the others drinking their pints, discussions about religion and politics begin.
3: What's up with you? You look like a fella that had lost the bob and found the tenor. <laughs>
2: Gold
0: Cup. Who won? Throwaway at 20 to
2: 1. A rank outsider, and the rest nowhere. Nobody in Barney Kiernan's, of course, had backed Throwaway. I must go now.
3: Just around to the court a moment to see if Martin is there. If he comes, just say I'll be back in a second. Just a moment.
0: I know where he's gone. Bloom. He had a few bob on throw away and he's gone to gather in the shekels. Is it that white-eyed kaffir that never backed a horse in anger in his life? That's where he's gone. I met Bantam Lions going to back that horse. Only, I put him off it. And he told me Bloom gave him the tip.
3: I say you can keep it. I was going to throw it away that moment.
0: I'll risk it. Here, thanks. Bet you what you like, he has a hundred shillings to five on. He's the only man in Dublin has it. Never be up to those bloody Jerusalem cuckoos. Do you know what I'm telling you?
5: it would be an act of God to take a hold of a fella the like that and throw him in the bloody sea. Justifiable homicide, so it would. Not as much as would blind your eye. So
2: in comes Martin Cunningham, asking, where was Bloom? And shortly after that, Mr. Bloom arrives back. By this stage... The lads are furious when they realise that, well, Mr Bloom is not going to buy them a drink from his supposed winnings, but sure the poor man hasn't got the slightest idea what they're on about. Debates about religion and nationality flare up again. What is your nation, if I may ask?
3: Ireland. I was born here, Ireland, and I belong to a race too that has hated and persecuted, robbed, Plundered, insulted, persecuted.
5: Are you talking about the new Jerusalem? Mm. Three cheers for Israel.
3: Your God was a Jew. Christ was a Jew like me. Jesus, i
5: brain that bloody Jew man for using the holy name. By Jesus, i crucify him, so I will. Give, give me that biscuit box there.
2: All hell breaks
5: loose. God, the devil wouldn't stop until he got a hold of the bloody tin, anyhow, and little Alf hanging onto his elbow. Begob, he drew his hand and made a swipe and left fly, mercy
2: of God, the sun was in his eyes or he'd a left him for dead. Gob, he near sent it into the county, Longford. Mr Bloom hurries off in a cab with Martin Cunningham with the citizen roaring down the street after them and that mangy mongrel Gary Owen chasing them as fast as he could. You never saw the like of it in all your born puff. The Jarvie saved his life by furious driving as sure as God
5: made Moses. What? Oh Jesus, he did. And the last we saw was the bloody car round on the corner, an old sheep face on it, gesticulating, and the bloody mongrel after it with his lugs back for all he was bloody well worth to tear him limb from limb.
2: Well, they just about managed to get away in the end. And in one piece. And having survived the ordeal of the flying, empty Jacob's biscuit tin, Mr. Bloom and Martin Cunningham pay a visit to the late Paddy Dignam's widow in Sandymount to help her sort out her finances. So we're now back with Mr. Bloom on Sandymount Strand, where Stephen strolled along this morning on his way into the city. And now... Mr. Bloom, on his own again, is leaning against a rock.
1: The summer evening had begun to fold the world in its mysterious embrace. Far away in the west, the sun was setting and the last glow of all too fleeting day lingered lovingly on sea and strand. In front of him on the strand
2: enjoying the evening sun are three girlfriends. Sissy Caffrey, Edie Boardman and Gertie McDowell. Gertie McDowell, a girl in her early 20s, is sitting on a rock a little bit away from the others and Mr. Bloom is gazing at her. She's daydreaming about love and about a particular boy she fancies. But she's also very conscious of Mr. Bloom staring at her.
1: Till then, they had only exchanged glances of the most casual, but now, under the brim of her new hat, she ventured a look at him. And the face that met her gaze there in the twilight, wan and strangely drawn, seemed to her the saddest she had ever seen.
2: Gertie begins to fantasise about having an affair with him.
1: If she saw the magic lure in his eyes, there would be no holding back for her. She would make the great sacrifice. Dearer than the whole world would she be to him and gild his days with happiness Come what might, she would be wild, untrammeled, free.
2: Her imagination is creating all kinds of notions about this affair. And just then, fireworks from the local bazaar begin to explode in the sky. Cissy and Edie run down the strand for a better look. But Gertie doesn't budge. Oh no, she stays, sitting alone on the rock, excited by Mr Bloom's attention.
1: At last they were left alone, without the others to pry and pass remarks, and she knew he could be trusted to the death. Steadfast, a sterling man, a man of inflexible honour to his fingertips. She leaned back, far to look up where the fireworks were, and she caught her knee in her hand so as not to fall back looking up, and there was no one to see, only him and her, when she revealed All her graceful, beautifully shaped legs like that. Supply soft, delicately rounded and she seemed to hear the panting of his heart. His hoarse breathing because she knew about the passion of men like that. Hot-blooded.
2: And oh how right she is. Because Mr Bloom, with a full view of Gertie's thighs all the way up, is becoming very excited indeed and very aroused. And he's, shall we say, busy with his hands in his trouser pockets. He starts to visualise the sexual antics of Molly and Blazes Boylan that afternoon and all of these fantasies accumulate in his head to a point where he discreetly
4: performs an act of self-relief. Mr. Bloom, with careful hand, recomposed his wet shirt.
3: Begins to feel cold and clammy. After effect, not pleasant. Still, you have to get rid of it some way.
2: And Joyce hints very subtly that little, innocent Gertie MacDowell knew exactly what Mr. Bloom was up to.
1: Should a girl tell? No. A thousand times No. That was their little secret. Only theirs, alone in the hiding twilight. Besides, there was an absolution so long as you didn't do the other thing before being married. And there was none to know or tell. Save the little bat that flew so softly through the evening to and fro. And little bats don't tell. The excitement
2: brought on by watching Gertie and then taking matters in hand, so to speak, has now left Mr. Bloom exhausted and drained, but feeling good, so he dozes for a while on the rocks. And the evening is slowly turning into night.
4: From house to house giving his ever welcome double knock went the nine o'clock postman the glowworm's lamp at his belt gleaming here and there through the laurel hedges. Mr Bloom
2: wakens from his doze but he doesn't want to go home yet so he sets off for Hollow Street Maternity Hospital to check up on his acquaintance Mina Purifoy who, as we heard earlier has been in labour for a full three days and now at last Leopold Bloom and Stephen Daedalus finally meet up. Mr. Bloom notices that Stephen is fairly drunk, so he decides to stay around and look after him. The news finally arrives that Mrs. Purifoy's long wait is, at last, over.
4: Meanwhile, the skill and patience of the physician had brought about a happy accouchement. It had been a weary, weary while for both patient and doctor. All that surgical skill could do was done and the brave woman had manfully helped. She had fought the good fight and now she was very, very
2: happy. But back in the waiting room Stephen and his friends become so rowdy and noisy so they all leg it around the corner to Burke's pub. Trap,
5: trap, trap!
2: The boys are marching. Beer, beef, business,
5: bibles, bulldogs, battleships, buggery, ambitions. What's the
3: sound of this here do? Five number ones. Ginger cordial.
5: Two landlords. A landlord,
2: landlord, have you good wine, staboo, staboo. Mister Bloom is taking it easy and keeping a watchful eye on Stephen, who's getting drunker and drunker.
0: I'm all get you gone.
2: The pub eventually closes. Ah, but Stephen isn't content to leave it at that.
3: Come on, you wine-fizzling, gin-sizzling, goose-guzzling existences.
0: Come on, you dog-gone, bull-necked, beetle-browed,
3: hog-jowled, peanut-brained, weasel-eyed, four-flushers, false alarms, and excess baggage.
2: Yes, Stephen is off to the red light district. Nicknamed the Monto
4: after Montgomery Street. The Mabbott Street entrance of Nighttown, before which stretches an uncobbled tram-siding set with skeleton tracks and danger signals. Rows of flimsy houses with gaping doors. Rare lamps with faint rainbow fans. So we
2: are now in the middle of the Monto. Or Nighttown, as Joyce calls it, with Stephen and his pal Lynch, and with Mr. Bloom hot on their heels, trying to keep an eye on Stephen.
3: What am I following him for? Still, he's the best of that lot. If I hadn't heard about Mrs. Purefoy, I wouldn't have gone and wouldn't have met.
2: Now, most of this episode of Ulysses takes place in a crazy, dreamlike world with bits of reality thrown in.
5: Trinity Medicals, all frickin' no pence.
6: Oh, Poldy, you're a poor old stick in the mud. Go and see life. See the wide world.
0: Ten shillings a maidenhead. Fresh thing. Was never touched. You won't get a virgin in the flash houses. Ten shillings and eight men. Fresh. fresh was never too. You won't get a virgin. When you
1: saw heard. all the secrets of my bottom drawer. <laughs> Dirty married man. I love you for doing that to me. Dirty married man. Dirty married man. Dirty married man.
5: Be back riding. Wait for age. Gobby organized her. Or. Arse over tip. Hundred shillings
1: to five. But I'm faithful to the man that's treating me, though I'm only a shilling. Faithful to the
3: man that's treating me, though I'm only
1: a shilling. Faithful
3: to the man that's treating me,
6: though I'm only a a shilling. You're a poor old stick in the mud. Go and see life.
0: My subjects.
3: We thank you from our heart for this right royal welcome to Green Aaron. He shall ere long enter into the Golden City, which is to be the new Blue Moosalem.
6: Oh, holdy, you're a poor old stick in the mud. Go and see life, see the wide world.
3: Blue is bisexually is abnormal. Is is abnormal. abnormal. He is about to have a baby. Oh. I so want to be a mother, 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 mother. Embrace
1: Embrace me tight, dear. You'll soon be over over. it.
4: Bloom embraces her tightly, and And there's eight eight male yellow and and white white children. children.
1: Unseen. One summer eve, you kissed me in four places.
2: Mr. Bloom eventually catches up with Stephen, who's waving his walking stick and wildly dancing around in Bella Cohen's brothel.
1: The lamp. Who pays for the lamp? There. You were with him. The lamp's broken.
3: There's not sixpence worth of damage done. There.
1: There's a row outside.
3: What? Where? Your friend, with two soldiers.
0: You are my guests, the uninvited. Say, so how would it
5: be, Governor, if I was a bash in your jaw? How? Very unpleasant.
2: But here, in my head, I must kill the priest and the king. What's that you're saying about my king? you die for your country, I suppose.
3: But I say, let my country die for me. I understand your point of view,
2: but I have no king myself for the moment.
3: Come home. You'll get into trouble.
2: I don't avoid it. He provokes my intelligence. Hey,
3: hey, what are you saying about my king? He said nothing, not a word. A pure misunderstanding.
5: I'll ring the neck of any bugger says a word against my fucking king. Did I? When? I'll ring the neck of any fucking bastard says a word against my bleeding fucking king.
4: He rushes towards Stephen, fist outstretched, and strikes him in the face. Stephen totters, collapses, falls, stunned he lies prone, his face to the sky, his hat rolling to the wall. Bloom follows and picks it up. Mr Bloom revives Stephen, picks him up out of the gutter,
2: dusts him down and hauls him out of night town.
4: Preparatory to anything else, Mr Bloom handed Stephen the hat and ashplant and bucked him up generally in orthodox Samaritan fashion, which he very badly needed. Stephen's mind was not exactly what you would call wandering, but a bit unsteady, and on his expressed desire for some beverage to drink, Mr Bloom hit upon an expedient by suggesting the propriety of the cabman's shelter, as it was called, hardly a stone's throw away at Butt Bridge. Mr Bloom and Stephen entered the cabman's shelter, an unpretentious wooden structure where, prior to then, he had rarely if ever been before. It's now around midnight
2: and everybody's tired.
3: Now touching a cup of coffee, it occurs to me you ought to sample something in the shape of solid food, say, a roll of some description.
4: The keeper of the shelter put a boiling swimming cup of a choice concoction labelled coffee on the table and a rather antediluvian specimen of a bun, or so it seemed after which he beat a retreat to his counter.
3: I propose, as it's rather stuffy here, you just come with me and talk things over. My diggings are quite close in the vicinity. You can't drink that stuff. Wait, I'll just pay this lot.
4: To cut a long story short, Bloom, grasping the situation, was the first to rise to his feet so as not to outstay their welcome, having first and foremost been as good as his word that he would foot the bill for the occasion.
3: The air will do you good. The only is to walk and then you'll feel a different man. It's not far. Lean on me.
4: The night air was certainly now a treat to breath, though Stephen was a bit weak on his pins. On the roadway which they were approaching, a horse, dragging a sweeper, paced on the paven ground, brushing a long swathe of mire up.
3: Our lives are in peril tonight. Beware of the steamroller.
4: The horse, having reached the end of his tether, so to speak, halted and reared high a proud feathering tail, added his quota by letting fall on the ground, which the brush would soon brush up and polish, three smoking globes of turds.
2: And as they make their way back to Echo Street, he tells us the various subjects they discuss en
4: route. Music, literature... Ireland, Dublin, Paris, friendship woman, prostitution, diet, the influence of gaslight or the light of arc and glow lamps on the growth of adjoining paraheliotropic trees, exposed corporation emergency dust buckets, the Roman Catholic Church, ecclesiastical celibacy, the Irish nation, Jesuit education, careers, the study of medicine, the past day, the maleficent influence of the pre-Sabbat and Stephen's collapse. Well, they eventually arrive back to Mr. Bloom's home.
2: Arriving at the front door, Mr. Bloom realises that he doesn't have a key to get in.
4: At the house steps of the fourth of the equidifferent uneven numbers, number 7 Eccles Street, he inserted his hand mechanically into the back pocket of his trousers to obtain his latch key. Was it there? It was in the corresponding pocket of the trousers, which he had worn on the day but one preceding. Why was he doubly irritated? Because he had forgotten, and because he remembered that he had reminded himself twice
2: not to forget. So rather than waken Molly, he climbs over the railings and jumps down into the basement area in order to nudge the dodgy basement door open.
4: Resting his feet on the dwarf wall, he climbed over the area railings, compressed his hat on his head, grasped two points at the lower union of rails and stiles, lowered his body gradually by its length of 5 feet 9 inches and a half to within 2 feet 10 inches of the area pavement and allowed his body to move freely in space by separating himself from the railings and crouching in preparation for the impact of the fall. Regaining new stable equilibrium, he
2: rose uninjured. Mr. Bloom opens the front door and lets Stephen in and they start talking again about everything and anything. They both have a cup of eps-soluble cocoa and Stephen sings an ancient Irish song for Mr. Bloom.
3: Shul, shul, shul aru. Shul go shul go kium. Go slum.
2: Who responds with the translation of an ancient Hebrew saying,
3: Thy temple amid thy hair is a slice of pomegranate.
2: In the middle of their conversation, what proposal does Mr. Bloom make to Stephen?
4: To pass in repose the hours intervening between Thursday and Friday on an extemporised cubicle in the apartment immediately above the kitchen. And was this offer accepted? Promptly, inexplicably, with amicability. Gratefully, it was... Declined. Mr Bloom
2: eventually sees Stephen out, through the back door and down the side passage to the back lane, presumably not to waken Molly. And as they stroll through the garden, Mr. Bloom gazes up into the night sky.
4: The heaven tree of stars hung with humid night blue fruit.
2: When they reach the end of the garden, Joyce kindly shares with us details of
4: their final act together. At Stephen's suggestion, at Bloom's instigation, both... First Stephen, then Bloom, urinated, their sides contiguous, their organs of micturition reciprocally rendered invisible by manual circumposition. The trajectories of their first sequent, then simultaneous urinations were dissimilar. Bloom's longer, less irruent. Stephen's higher, more sibilant. And with the
2: echoes of Stephen's footsteps gradually diminishing down the laneway, Mr. Bloom goes back into the house and he checks that everything in the house is in order. He goes upstairs to the bedroom and he puts on his nightshirt and he climbs
4: into bed beside Molly. He kissed the plump, mellow, yellow, smelly melons of her rump. As usual,
2: he lies the opposite way around to Molly, head to toe. Now Molly, as it turns out, isn't quite asleep, so she and Mr. Bloom, or Poldy as she likes to call him, have a short conversation and he tells her that he wants breakfast in bed in the morning with a couple of eggs. So we now say good night and take our leave of our champion Mr. Bloom as he drifts off to sleep to begin yet another wandering journey in the land of dreams. Yes, Bloom's day is well and truly over for our hero. We are now left in the company of Molly Bloom, Poldie's unfaithful but long suffering wife. And in these final pages of Ulysses, Molly lays bare before us all her hopes and dreams, her thoughts about men, about sex, and in particular her feelings towards her husband, Poldy. And her first thoughts are about his rather unusual request for breakfast in bed.
6: Yes, because he never did a thing like that before, as asked to get his breakfast in bed with a couple of eggs since the City Arms Hotel, when he used to be pretending to be laid up with a sick voice. (laughs) Yes. He came somewhere, I'm sure, by his appetite. Anyway, love it's not or he'd be off his feed thinking of her. Not like blazes boiling this afternoon. I wonder was he satisfied with me? He must have come three or four times with that tremendous big red brute of a thing he has. I thought that the vein, or whatever the dickens they call it, was going to burst, sticking up at you like a hat rack. One thing, I didn't like his slapping me behind, going away so familiarly in the hall, though I laughed. I'm not a horse or an ass, am I? I wonder, is he awake thinking of me? Or dreaming? Am I in it? And I wonder, am I in Poldy's dreams there? Maybe he's dreaming about our first day's courting? I was dying to find out, was he circumcised? He was shaken like a jelly all over. They want to do everything too quick. Take all the pleasure out of it. And father waiting all the time for his dinner. He told me to say I left my purse in the butchers and had to go back for it. What a deceiver. Well, at least he won't be coming up to Belfast with us. Just as well he has to go to Ennis. His father's anniversary, the 27th. It wouldn't be pleasant if he did... Suppose our rooms at the hotel were beside each other and any fooling went on in the new bed. I couldn't tell him to stop and not bother me with him in the next room. It's all very well a husband, but you can't fool a lover. After me telling him we never did anything. Of course he didn't believe me. But that won't make any difference on our trip to Belfast. Oh, I love jaunting in a train or a car with lovely soft cushions. I wonder, will he take a first class for me? He might want to do it in the train by tipping the guard. Well, he could buy me a nice present up in Belfast after what I gave him. They've lovely linen up there, or one of those nice kimono things. Oh, Lord, all of this is a far cry from young Harry Mulvey, my first sweetheart. He was the first man kissed me under the Moorish wall. It never entered my head what kissing meant "'till he put his tongue in my mouth. "'His mouth was sweet-like, young. "'I put my knee up to him a few times to learn the way. "'Well, would you look at oldie there? "'Fast asleep, dead to the world. "'I hope he's not going to get in with those medicals leading him astray. "'To imagine he's young again. "'Coming in at four in the morning, it must be, if not more.' Still, he had the manners not to wake me. What do they find to gabber about all night, squandering money and getting drunker and drunker? And bringing Steve and Deadlitus home, if you don't mind, of all people. I hope he hasn't long greasy hair hanging into his eyes. I wonder, is he too young? He's about... I suppose he's twenty or more... I'm not too old for him if he's twenty-three or twenty-four. I hope he's not that stuck-up university student sort. And if he's not, he never know what might happen. I'll read and study all I can find or learn a bit off by heart, if I knew who he likes, so he won't think me stupid. I'll make him feel all over him till he half faints under me. Then he'll write about me, lover and mistress publicly too with our two photographs in all the papers when he becomes famous oh but then what am I going to do about him though and what would things be like today if poor little Rudy hadn't died I suppose I oughtn't to have buried him in that little woolly jacket I knitted crying as I was but give it to some poor child but I knew well I'd never have another our first death too it was we were never the same since. Oh, I'm not going to think myself into the glooms about that anymore. Poor Poldy. He never got over little Rudy. I'll get up early in the morning. I'll throw him up his eggs and tea in the mustache cup. I suppose he'd like my nice cream too. I know what I'll do. I'll go about rather gay, not too much singing. I have a mind to tell him every scrap and make him do it in front of me. Serve him right. It's all his own fault if I'm an adulteress. Oh, much about it if that's all the harm ever we did in this valley of tears. God knows it's not much. If only we could turn the clock back. The sun shines for you, he said, the day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hoth Head. The day I got him to propose to me. He said I was a flower of the mountain, yes. And the sun shines for you today, yes. That is why I liked him, because I saw he understood or felt what a woman is. And I knew I could always get around him. And I gave him all the pleasure I could, leading him on till he asked me to say yes. And I wouldn't answer first, only look out over the sea and sky. Then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes. And he asked me, would I, yes, to say yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes. And his heart was going like mad and yes, I said, yes, I will, yes.
2: And so ends our journey and this extraordinary novel with Molly's positive affirmation of her love and affection for her husband, Poldy.
6: Yes, I said. Yes, I will. Yes.
2: Strolling Through Ulysses Written and narrated by Robert Goggin Script editing, various voices and direction by Emer Finan
1: Produced, recorded and edited by Alan Meaney. Music played by Danny Weir Bloom, played by Paul Fred McCluskey. The Reader, played by Tracy Bruin. Molly, played by
2: Zita Monahan mcgowan Stephen, played by John Rogers. Various voices by Bob Kelly,
1: Francis Finan, Orla McGovern and Conor Gagan. The programme is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.